0: We're going to continue in Mark, and you know, Ben mentioned a few months ago when we were talking about the outline of Mark, he was like, oh, and I'm going to, you know, Hal, if you could step in and, and preach, you know, at this point, I'm going to step out, I need to do some things for a, a week, and and I was like, sure, and uh, you know, I was thinking maybe, you know, maybe a four or five verses would, would work nicely, and so not to alarm you, right, but let me just... But maybe to alarm you. So we're going to go through March. I'm sorry. We're going to go through Mark. Mark, I, I, I typed Mark and March a whole lot to, uh, because we're in March. We're going to go from Mark 2, 18 through Mark 3, verse 6. So that's a pretty long section. Um, and we're going to work through some really amazing. We're going to see jesus talking to the pharisees and we're going to see some amazing he's going to reveal himself in amazing ways all right so that's a long section we're going to break it up but to to get started let me let me share a little story about about my first job my first job was teaching high school i was a high school english teacher and basketball coach that was my first job and i loved that first job You know, one of the interesting things, though, I I met with a lot of uh, experienced teachers who who shared their wisdom or their their knowledge and their experiences with me. And there was really one really big thing that they shared with a lot of new teachers. How many of you are in the teaching profession? All right, great. So I don't know if you've heard this before, but there's a saying for new teachers and, and for teachers in general that. Don't smile until Christmas. Hey, you're going to start classes, students are going to come in. Don't smile until Christmas. And so I I started that new year, and there were three or four other new teachers, and we kind of heard that, and we thought, oh, well, maybe that's what we should do. Maybe we should show them that we mean business, right? And so we're not going to smile, and we're going to be nothing but rules and rules and you know, teaching, and, and we're not going to smile. We're not going to build relationships. We're not going to smile or laugh until Christmas. And then maybe after Christmas we can do that. You know, we can break a smile. And so you might hear that, and you might think, well, that's, hmm. Yeah, that's, how many of you have heard that before in the teaching? Yeah, I see those hands. Yeah, so, so it is something, you know, so, so I decided not to do that. I was like, yeah, I, I, I can't do that. Two other new teachers, some friends of mine, they decided to do that. And so every day they would go in there and they would be all about business. They wouldn't smile. They wouldn't laugh. Students would try to connect with them and relate to them. Nothing. And so you can imagine sort of what happened. If you've if you've been in a classroom before with a teacher with that type of approach to relating to their students, you would think, okay, I don't feel cared for. This teacher's grumpy. This teacher's confusing. And I don't like this person. This teacher doesn't care about me. And so as a result, the students then relate to the teacher and have a difficult time relating to the teacher. The teacher's all about... Here's a rule, follow it. Here's a rule, follow it. I'm not playing with you. Follow it. And so the, the students then relate to the teacher and say, oh, oh okay, well, let, let me figure out this rule-following game and, in order to be on the good side of the teacher. So I share all of that to say that eventually those teachers, well, the teachers realized that teaching wasn't happening, learning wasn't happening, because relationships were not happening. Eventually, those new teachers had to regroup and start over with their students. Then they started smiling and, and being themselves, and their classrooms got better, and their relationships with students got better too. So looking back at that experience, I think the origin of the rule of not smiling until Christmas actually started with a helpful purpose. I think it actually started, I think at the root of that rule, there was something healthy about it. There was something healthy. I, th- I think the origin or the original intent of this rule was to really attempt to show teachers and help teachers and new teachers in how to relate to their students. You see, many new teachers are often young, they're inexperienced, and they have a hard time managing a classroom of students. So they're young, usually just like five or six years older than their, than their students. And many students relate and see the young teachers as cool, and they want to be their friends, which makes it hard for students to relate to the new teachers as their authority figure in the classroom. So instead of saying, okay, here's the rule, it's really important that your students see you and relate to you as both a kind person and the authority in the classroom. Instead of that, somehow that helpful rule turned into an unhealthy rule. It turned into, you know, students need to relate to you and see that you mean business, or they're going to walk all over you. So they need to relate to you as the person in charge. They don't need to relate to you as a kind, caring person. They will definitely take advantage of you. So don't smile until Christmas. So that's kind of what we're going to try to do with that illustration as we're going to look in the text today and it has a lot of similarities with this illustration. We're going to see hopefully how God shares helpful spiritual practices to help people relate to him better. And over time, unfortunately, the rule followers turn turn God's helpful spiritual practices into their own overemphasized unhealthy practices that take all the joy out of our relationship with God. These rule followers related to God with their rules, their man-made rules. And the bigger the rule, and the more complicated the rule, and the more difficult the rule, the better. They related to God with these unhealthy spiritual practices. And Jesus comes to the scene in the Gospel of Mark. He comes on the scene and he's showing them the better way to relate to God. At different times, the Pharisees had overemphasized rituals and practices that squashed any kind of joy and any kind of true joy in their lives. For certain rituals, they would whiten their faces and put ashes on their heads, wear old and worn out clothing. They didn't wash. They looked as bad as possible. You could not be, in their world, in their mind, you could not be spiritual, spiritual, right? Unless you were uncomfortable And looked even worse. So, these two images of a teacher relating to their students by not smiling until Christmas, and the Pharisees relating to God by being as uncomfortable as possible, are at the heart of what we're going to discuss today. So, a quick recap. Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark how Jesus is preaching the word, healing people calling fishermen and tax collectors to follow him, and they do follow. Jesus is revealing who he is. He's revealing his nature and his character and his identity and his authority as the son of God. And the religious establishment of that day, the Pharisees, they don't like it. And they're asking lots of questions like, why does this man speak like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus' ministry and Jesus' teachings are colliding with the religious establishment of that day. And today we'll look at how Jesus answers more questions about who he is and his nature. It will also be interesting to listen to more questions from the Pharisees and how the Pharisees' questions reveal the true nature of the Pharisees. You know, sometimes our questioning kind of reveals who we are, kind of our own nature. So we're going to see a distinction, a gospel, clear gospel distinction between the Pharisees' questions and their nature and Jesus' questions back to the Pharisees and his true nature. All right, so today we're going to look at three different sections in the gospel of Mark. So the plan, here's the plan, there's going to, hopefully, there's going to be, um, I'm looking at the time, um, Blair's going to give me the signal for me when I'm done. So uh, here's the plan, right? So let me give you a quick little uh, analogy. So hopefully they're gonna be, there's going to be an overarching theme. I'll share that with you. Then there are going to be three chunks, right, of the the, the sections we've got. There's, so Three sections. And we're going to sort of take off the plane, talk about the first section, all right, discuss it, talk about some application points, sort of land, touch down, land the plane for just a minute to kind of summarize. And then we're going to take off, refuel, right, hopefully refuel. Then go back up, and then almost like landing on an aircraft carrier, refueling, and then coming back up. And then we're going to go to the second section, and we're going to land, kind of touch down briefly to refuel. And we're going to take off again in the third and final section, and then hopefully, at the end of that one, safely land, right? Hopefully that means everybody will be awake and kind of summarize the overarching theme of, of these passages. So that's the plan. So a quick overview. Here's the outline. The overarching theme, if you want to write this in your notes, um, is responding to Jesus, so we're going to see in the, uh, in the Scripture today how Jesus reveals more about who He is and how different groups of people respond to the truth of Jesus. And we'll also be confronted today, hopefully, with how we are responding to Jesus in our own lives. So here are the three sections of Scripture. Section 1, Mark two eighteen through 22. Your Bible probably has a subheading, something like, A Question About Fasting. Section 2 is going to be Mark 2, 23 through 28. Um, am I saying Mark or March? I'm saying Mark. Okay, good. Um, your Bible might have a subheading for that one that says, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And then the last sections, Mark 3, 1 through 6, probably might, your Bible might have a subheading that says something like, a man with a withered hand. So, all right, so let's take off on the first section. So, section 1, Mark 2, 8 through 22, Again, your Bible has a subheading probably uh, that that says something like a question about fasting. If the Pharisees had a newspaper, right, then their headline for this section would have read something more like um, Jesus and his disciples refuse to fast. Okay, So, so uh, so the theme for the Pharisees was that, wow, these folks are not doing what they should be doing. Right, they are not doing what they should be doing. Jesus and his disciples refuse to fast, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of call this section. Jesus says he's here, and it's time for joy and celebration. So let's look at read through Mark two eighteen through twenty two. All right, verse eighteen. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. All right, so we see here that some of John the Baptizer's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. And Jesus' disciples were not fasting. So a little bit about fasting, uh, some background. The Scriptures commanded fasting only once a year. You can go back into Leviticus 16, and it talks about the Day of Atonement, which was a national day of repentance and forgiveness. But by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had basically decreed that godly people should fast twice a week on the second and fifth days, Mondays Mondays and Thursdays, and at that time, fasting had become an overemphasized public ritual for the, for the religious establishment. This attitude from the Pharisees was derived from, among other things, the false assumption that true religion, right, the don't-smile-until-Christmas type religion, was a solemn, joyless affair. And these overemphasized external rituals and public works were the way to being right to God, and those were the way to relate to God, to be a rule follower. So when the Day of Atonement was instituted in Leviticus, it showed us what God requires. This is an interesting picture, right, of foreshadowing of the gospel. So when the Day of Atonement was instituted in Leviticus, it showed us that what God requires for dealing with the problem of human sin. In Leviticus, it mentions a blood sacrifice and the idea of substitutionary atonement which means we can't possibly pay for our own sin debt and how we need a substitute to pay that sin debt. This foreshadows Jesus' blood sacrifice on the cross and Him taking our place on the cross. This is an amazing picture all the way in Leviticus of God's redemption, redemptive story, and a picture of the gospel for believers today and something to celebrate. So as believers on this side of the cross... It's maybe easy for us to look at this passage in Mark and look at the Pharisees and to see their hard hearts and think, come on, Jesus is here. How can you not be in the presence of Jesus and not realize that you're in the presence of Jesus? It's a time for feasting, not fasting, right? Jesus is the bride. Come on, wake up. Jesus is the bridegroom and he's here and it's time to celebrate, So let's look back at Jesus' responses to the fasting question. So there are three responses. One's a wedding celebration. He talks about the illustration of a wedding. He talks about unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Then he talks about new wine and old wineskins. So the wedding celebration. So Jesus talks about a wedding with wedding guests and a bridegroom. So he's saying that this is a time for celebration, not fasting. It's a time of joy. Most people would have understood this illustration that you don't fast at a wedding, right? I mean, duh, right? After, um, after an ancient Jewish wedding, the couple did not honeymoon, but they stayed home for a week of open house in which there was continual feasting and celebration. They were attended to by chosen friends known as guests of the bridegroom. Their guests were exempt from all fasting from the rules of that day, the rabbinical rules of that day. And and the rules said that everybody in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. Right. So as believers on the other side of the cross, today the application of this illustration is so encouraging. Today we're not just guests of the bridegroom as believers in his church, We're actually the bride of Christ. So in in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, it talks about this, this idea, right, of Christ and the church. So verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in Mark 2, Jesus is revealing that he's the bridegroom and it's a time for joy and celebration. Jesus also foreshadows a time when he'll be taken away from the disciples. The Pharisees didn't like. They found no joy, in fact, in what Jesus was saying. They related to God differently. And they responded to Jesus differently. They related to God with overemphasized rituals. And Jesus was saying the bridegroom is here and it's time to celebrate and have joy in Christ. Now the second illustration to the fasting question is sewing a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. So in verse 21, he said, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So if you take an old sail, right, uh, for a sailboat for ex- for instance, and patch one of its small holes with new sailing cloth as soon as it becomes wet and it dries you 'll have a far a far bigger hole in the sail. The new fabric that Christ brings cannot be interwoven with the old fibers of old religion it 'll simply tear it apart all right so there 's the wetting there 's the unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and the third illustration is putting new wine in the old wineskins. All right, so he says in verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. I did a little bit of reading on this. Um, In ancient times, right, ancient culture, they used the skins of goats, and they were stripped off as nearly whole as possible, and they were tanned, so that they could be filled with new wine. they were elastic, um, and the strength of of those skins would allow the fermenting new wine to expand. However, if new wine that still was fermenting was put into old wine skins, those old brittle wine skins that were inflexible would would burst right the new wine fermenting would cause them to burst. And both the wine and the wineskins would be, would be lost. So in this illustration, Jesus is the new wine. And the old wineskins are the old religious establishment with their rituals and practices. The new life that Christ brings is full of hope in his promises. Our old self, which means our previous experiences, our cherished customs, our routines... Our prejudices, the familiar that we're comfortable with, right? All of that is apart from Christ. They tend to be the old wineskins. We have to allow Christ to reform all these areas or we'll burst. Just pray, Lord, that we'll, make, we'll ask Christ to take, take us, reform us, reform our lives, our prejudices, our comforts, and renew us as vessels that will hold his wine so that we can be fulfilled with, with his joy. All right, so let's quickly touch down the plane. All right, that's the first, first section. Okay, we're good on time. Um, touch down the plane. A lot of information in that section, right? But one of the big questions is how are we responding to Jesus? Are we so focused on unhealthy rituals, maybe even religious rituals, right, that we are missing the truth of how Christ has reformed us. Here's an application point to consider. Are we, are we individually, right, are we more prone to focus on the spiritual disciplines in an unhealthy way and miss the opportunities to enjoy Christ and His right now grace in our lives? This right now, in the moment, smacking us in the face grace that we could celebrate and praise Him for and give Him the glory for. And another application point to consider, what are the practical ways for us to integrate the healthy spiritual disciplines that we do have into our daily lives and ultimately as a praise to to God? All right, so that's section one. We're taking off. We've, We've hopefully refueled. I don't see anybody asleep yet, actually. These are reading glasses, so when I look up, it's really hard to focus on you, and I don't want to look at you. I don't want to look like the mean teacher, right, like that. Um, Okay, so section two, we're taking back off. Thanks for sticking with us. All right, so this is Mark 2, 23 through 28. And again, your Bible might have a subheading that says, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And again, if the Pharisees had a newspaper headline, it would probably say something like, um, Jesus and his disciples break the Sabbath law. So again, rule followers, a very different set of overemphasized rituals. Um, that's the lens they were looking through. All right, so let's read through together um, Mark 2, 23 through 28. All right, verse 23. which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat and also gave it to those who were with him and he said to them the sabbath was made for man and not man for the sabbath so the lord of so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath so again we see that the pharisees ask we see the pharisees asking jesus a question about why his disciples were doing something unlawful why they were breaking the rules. Something against the overemphasized religious rituals. In this situation, they're referring to breaking the Sabbath ritual. In their religious structure, the Pharisees believed that real faith was humanly attainable by this system of, rule, of rituals and, and practices. But God had actually given them a healthy picture of rest. In Genesis 2, 2 and 3. So, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. Finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Again, a a picture of rest. And then again in Exodus 20 verse 8 God shares that remember the sabbath day to keep it holy so so God presents this idea of rest as a healthy with a healthy purpose right it has a healthy purpose for this for this spiritual practice and the pharisees turn it into over years and years they turn it into an unhealthy rule an unhealthy ritual in, in an almost impossible rule to be followed, right? I, I read something. I don't want to get too into a rabbit trail, but I did read something that, like all of these, they added these rules, and, and it's like, okay, you you can only walk a certain number of steps in a particular direction, um, and you had to really be aware of that because if you you had to make sure that you had enough steps to get back on the Sabbath. So they made all these almost impossible rules. That, that, um, that, and that's the way they were relating to God. So, so when the Pharisees saw the disciples walking through a wheat field and breaking the heads of grain and eating it, they saw it through a, a ritualistic lens. And they saw it as Jesus' disciples working on the Sabbath. Regardless of how necessary or beneficial it might have been, they saw it as working on the Sabbath. They thought it would have been an offense to God. Jesus reminds them and makes a comparison about when King David ate sacred bread to meet his physical basic needs. And says that it was all right to meet one's need on the Sabbath, right? Jesus also reveals in this this section that he is the Son of Man and that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's revealing his authority. And as Jesus reveals more about His character and His authority as the Lord of the Sabbath, the Pharisees become more and more angry. Like their old wineskins, right? The image of the old wineskins taking on this new wine of Christ and hearing that they're about to burst with this new wine. Right? They're, They're so focused on the things that should be done. This should be, it should be this way. It should be that way. They should be doing this. They should not be doing this. So the application point to consider. So let's touch down here for a second. So the application point to consider, what are the religious shoulds in our own lives? Well, I should be reading my Bible right now, right? I really should be doing this. I really should be doing this. I really should not be happy right now or joyful because other people around me might take it the wrong way. They might, you know, I I really shouldn't show joy and, and laughter and because other people might, might misinterpret it. I really should memorize more scripture. I really should be praying more than I do. And, and that tyranny of the should, right, this tyranny of the should and being a rule follower and being really good and doing what we're supposed to do can just absolutely squash our joy in Christ. All right, so we've touched down. That's number two. Everybody's still awake, hopefully. And about to take off again for the last section. Are you ready? Everybody ready? Okay, hopefully. All right, last section. Section three, Mark. So we're going into chapter three, the first six sessions of Mark. So your Bible has probably has a subheading that says, A man with a withered hand. So the the Pharisee newspaper headline for this might have said something like Jesus breaks the law and must be destroyed. Okay. So again, very different view of what 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 Jesus sees in terms of compassion, right? A story about Jesus revealing his his nature and his compassion and his power and his authority, they see it as Jesus breaks the law and he must be destroyed. Okay, so let's read um, Mark 3, 1 through 6. So, verse 1. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. You notice they're not asking questions this time and they're not responding. And he looked around in verse five. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So in this last section the Pharisees are watching and waiting for Jesus, right? To see whether or not he's going to break another rule, right? That he's going to miss one of their rituals, right? And there's this Jesus and his disciples are going to. And so he's, they're, they're looking to watch and see whether he's going to heal a man on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. So instead of seeing the man right in this in this setting instead of the Pharisees seeing the man with the withered hand and having compassion for him the Pharisees' eyes are so focused on their rituals so focused on following the rules so focused on their religious approach to relating to God that they have no compassion for the man with the withered hand And they don't see the power, the authority, the nature of Jesus Christ. In this last section, the Pharisees do not publicly ask a question. But Jesus already knew what they were thinking and feeling. So he asked them the question, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He looks right into their hearts. He looks right into their hard hearts. And knows that they're already plotting to kill him. So you see that, 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 is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? So you hear that and it resonates because they're already plotting to kill him. So an application point to consider here is God examine, we just pray that God would examine our hearts. Where where are we missing opportunities to show compassion to others? What examples of God's grace are we missing and not seeing and not celebrating in our lives today? All right, so we're landing the plane for the final time. Um, So in all of these sections, I've been wondering over the last couple of weeks about how would I respond if I had been there? How would I, what, what what group would I have fallen into? How how have I responded? And so I want to I want to challenge all of us this morning to think about how do we respond to Christ and how are we every day how are we responding to who he is and, and his true nature? Would I have responded like some of the disciples of John the Baptizer? Because you notice in that first section. John the baptizer's disciples, some of them are are fasting with the Pharisees. So so what I have been like some of the disciples of John the baptizer and been like, okay, I've been liking what John the baptizer's been saying about a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I like like that. I like the sound of that. And I'm going to hold on to some of the traditional teachings and practices of the Pharisees, you know, just to be safe, just to cover all the bases. So so I'm listening to John the Baptizer, and now Jesus' teachings, and I'm going to hold on to the teachings of the Pharisees a little bit. My response is, I'm going to blend my own Hal belief or Halism, right? My name's Hal, by the way. Hal belief. (laughs) Yeah, don't Google that this how belief, right? Or your own personal belief or your own personal religion out of a combination of John the Baptizer's teachings and Jesus' teachings and the Pharisee's teachings? Is that, my, is that my response? Would that have been my response? Is that my, my response today? Am I trying to blend together different religions? Or, or, or would, my, would I have been more like many of the Pharisees at that time? And, and, and so afraid that what I had built my whole life on and had known for my whole life, now it was being questioned and undermined by this unknown Jesus character. Maybe I would have been angry at Jesus for taking away my comfort, my routine, my view of myself. Yes, yes Jesus was confronting the religious establishment but he was also confronting my establishment, my personal way of doing things. How dare him shine a light on that and tell me that my way's wrong? Who is he to judge me? Who does he think he is anyway? So what, how do I respond that way today, right? Or would I have been like Jesus' disciples and, and some of his other followers, right? And heard him... And heard his truth. And with my heart have been reformed. When I've followed him. And broken these overemphasized rituals. What I have celebrated and feasted in Jesus' presence. And I, I have been convicted over the last few days about how I respond to Jesus in similar ways today. I sometimes do a combination of those, Right? So when I'm confronted with who Jesus is and his word, right? So when Jesus' word confronts me with the truth of my sin nature and bitterness, my response is is sometimes, no, Jesus, you don't understand. I, I know you say that if we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts that we should not boast and be false to the truth, but Jesus, that person's a real pain. And, and I was reading this other book about having difficult conversations. And I was talking to this other people who told me this and gave me this advice. And and so I was doing the world a big favor. Whew. And honestly, Jesus, it felt good to do it. it kind of felt good to let him have it. And so are, are we responding to who Jesus is in that way? Right, Blending together like, the, the, like some of John the, disciples, John the Baptizer's disciples and sort of blending in together our own religion, our own rules, our own way of relating to Jesus and relating to God. When Jesus' word exposes my selfishness, right, my response is, well, Jesus, I deserve this comfort. Other people have it, so I want it. It would make me happy right now. And Jesus, I know you want me to be happy. So when I'm confronted with who Jesus is, there's a, a tendency for, for my sin nature to respond in an unhealthy way with my own rules and, and, and an old wineskin, old ritualistic approach. So, and, and how many of us are doing that very thing today? All right, so we are landing the plane, and we are parking. We're safely done. Whew. Uh Okay, so, so so Integrity Church, how are we responding to Jesus? Are we like some of the disciples of John the Baptizer, and we're trying to blend our beliefs with some of Jesus' teachings? Are we more like the Pharisees? And are there areas of, of in our life and in our hearts where we're holding so tightly to our ways, our routines, our comforts that we can't see and enjoy the promises of God right in front of our faces? Or are we responding like Jesus' disciples who listened and followed and celebrated and feasted in His presence? May may God use his word and Jesus' teachings to convict our hearts and open our eyes to love what Jesus loves and to hate what Jesus hates. And may we allow Jesus' love to expose our hearts and where they might be unhealthy, where there might be unhealthy rituals and a lack of joy and grace. Let's pray together. Father, we are...